0: Hello, friends. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to let you know that I've got a CME event currently running. It'll probably run through the end of the year 2020. It's about atopic dermatitis. It's free. It's worth 1.5 CME credit hours. It's got some self-study modules. You kind of go at your own pace. You interact with some of the other participants and with me, and then we have a couple live discussions. You learn some more about atopic dermatitis. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist at the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is...
1: This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas.
0: Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes to your ears with discussions of some of the latest research in the world of dermatology, what's floating out there in the Dermosphere. We make an effort to try to pick articles that are especially clinically relevant and to make some dad jokes so we keep you guys entertained and rolling your eyes. And this episode, like all the other episodes, we've got a great handful of articles. Michelle's going to kick us off.
1: All right, Luke. So the first article is entitled "Cosmetic Commentary: Is Bakuchiol the New skin care Hero?" And I hear your head so, sort of swimming here. Bakuchiol, what is this thing? Um, bakuchiol is a very interesting compound. And I didn't even know is... how to
0: pronounce it. It looks like it should be
1: bakuchiol. I might be saying it wrong. I'm not sure. So if I am, I've, I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. My sincerest of apologies. Um, B a k u c h i o l. I haven't looked up exactly how to how to like say it out loud, but I feel like that's correct. I'm not positive. Um, since we are talking about skincare heroes, I thought you might want to know the origin story. <laughs> playing into the nerddom that exists there of Excellent. this particular compound. So um, the way we're going to find that is actually through something called ethnobotany. Have you ever heard the term ethnobotany before, Luke?
0: I have heard the term ethno and the term botany, but never before have I put them together. My mind is swimming.
1: <laughs> so ethnobotany is the scientific study of traditional uh, the traditions of a people concerning plants for medicinal or religious uses. And it has led to the discovery of all kinds of things, such as using um, opium poppies to make pain-relieving medications or using the bark of a willow tree to make aspirin. A lot of our medications came from their first uses in sort of more natural practices. And this is a similar type of origin story here. So this is a chemical that has been used as parts of Ayurvedic medicine as well as traditional Chinese medicine. In Ayurvedic medicine, it has a fun name. It's called Kushtana Shini, which theoretically means leprosy destroyer, which is kind of cool. I know, the destroyer of leprosy. Yeah,
0: it really does sound like a superhero. And Ayurvedic is traditional Indian medicine, unless I am incorrect.
1: That is correct. So it is a leguminous plant, um, sometimes referred to as babchi. And you can actually, I looked for this, you can find all sorts of babchi oil products on multiple websites directed to lay consumers. So there's lots of babchi oil products available on Amazon, Amazon. Interestingly, some of them did remark about the possibility that this could cause some burns in the non-coumarin depleted version of this, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So this plant is a leguminous plant and it grows in India. It can be used to treat psoriasis, vitiligo, and leprosy. And it is a medicine that has a very complex chemical background. It contains all sorts of things, including coumarins, including sorolens. So you have to kind of be thoughtful about the way that the chemicals derived from this plant are used because some of them are relatively powerful and could potentially cause phototoxicity in high quantities or with certain types of use. So our author here, who is Dr. Natalie, sorry, Natalia Spearings, and she has many honorifics behind her name. So that's very exciting. Um, She is from the, she's a consultant dermatologist at London Medical Uh, in London, UK, King's College Hospital, and she's interested in sort of how this medication is being popularized. And this is
0: an article out of the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology.
1: Thank you for that, because the way that it printed, I didn't have that information, and I was trying to find it, and so I was sitting there going, okay, so... This is a nice letter that kind of addresses this emerging trend of Bakushial. It's something that's being talked about by beauty bloggers and things like that. There's a product at Sephora called Herbivore Bakushial Anti-Aging Serum and all the beauty bloggers on YouTube are raving about it. So um, this author has undertaken the... I think, very worthy task of looking at what's up behind all the fuss. So she mentions, of course, that the cosmetic skincare industry is, you know, always looking for the next new thing, the next holy grail of anti-aging. And as dermatologists, we need to help our patients critically appraise these products. And, you know, we need to be careful not to promote or dismiss the use of these products until we've really assessed their actual ability to help treat skin conditions. So this trendy ingredient of bakuchiol. The claim is that it's the gentler yet just as powerful sister to retinol. So retinol in this context is being used to kind of describe the over-the-counter versions of vitamin A derivatives, so like retinoic acid. I'm oh, sorry, retinol palmitate, my bad. I'm not the active prescription version, which would be retinoic acid. Bakushial is derived from the seeds and leaves of this plant, Soralia coriolifola, Uh, and I actually looked this plant up and the claims behind what it treats um, sound a little bit like when you would, you know, see in those movies from the depression era or something, some guy on the back of a wagon going, it, it, you know, treats If you have leprosy, if you have skin scaling, if your hair is falling out, there was one article that mentioned impotence treatment. There were a lot of things that were potentially promoted as a potential use for this, particular compound, well, this particular plant. And it does seem to have featured prominently in certain types of traditional medicine.
0: Sounds like I could use it for whatever my ailment.
1: Mm-hmm. Good for what ails you, right? So uh, I think it is important to critically re how this medicine is used. So the claim is that it is a functional analog of retinol based on its effects in gene expression profiles of the skin cells in vitro. And so the author here now looks at the different kinds of studies that have been performed on this compound. So she mentions that despite its presence in an array of new cosmetic skincare products, like the product at the Sephora, it's made by a company called Herbivore or something. I think they specialize in vegan skincare, which has become a real trend lately. I've had a couple of patients coming into my office asking for a vegan product for their skincare. Um, So this has been kind of promoted by a lot of people. And there's also aggressive marketing campaigns. Um, The retail price point usually is kind of expensive enough to signify that it works well so i like the way the author phrased this at a retail point uh, at a retail price point implying significant efficacy which to me i interpret that as kind of expensive and she says there have been only two studies performed looking at bacuchiol 0.5% cream and its effects on the skin and aging the first one was really kind of one of those industry studies and we should be really familiar with these because we are used to seeing them at the AAD. So whenever we sit and have that, you know, presentation by the different pharmaceutical companies, you know the Pfizer booth or, you know, the PNG booth where they're saying, you know, 60% of patients saw 60% of Um, subjects, they don't call them patients, 60% of subjects saw an improvement in their skin texture or something. And they're the, you know, very well groomed, lovely looking people who are up on the stage, kind of explaining things to us with the headset mics on. Those are usually industry studies, and they are somewhat scientifically designed, but they're not usually rigorous in terms of scientific um, methods. So these are kind of useful as a marketing tool, but not necessarily very weighty in terms of actual scientific data. So the first study like this that she reviewed had 17 females who applied this 0.5% bakuchiol cream as a finished skincare product. So they weren't, you know, taking chemicals out of a vial; they were using something that was provided them to to them as a cream, and they used it twice daily for 12 weeks. She points out that there were multiple methodological issues here. The most important one being the lack of the vehicle control, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine too. So if you have a topical skincare product and the skin looks better the day after you use it, it's a real good moisturizer it doesn't necessarily mean it's restructuring your skin and helping to build collagen or anything like that. It doesn't happen like that overnight. So just the vehicle could do that. You know, just the vehicle that the 0.5% Bacuchiol cream is in could potentially be an excellent humectant or moisturizer, and the skin could look better for the 12 weeks. So the operative time during the study was only 12 weeks um, without really significant biological activity necessarily so they don't have a vehicle control and with a topical medication this is a very important thing especially because you can have significant placebo effect in cream in topical treatments um, in trials. Yeah and you know we talked about the placebo and the nocebo effect previously in dermosphere so the vehicle used for the application, um, can have that occlusive or emollient property and all by itself might actually help to improve the ap- appearance of the skin. So that could have accounted for the improved smoothness and decreased appearance of fine lines that was seen in that particular study over 12 weeks. Uh, so that they kind of would have done much better if they had a control group that had vehicle only that's a better way to help demonstrate the efficacy of an active ingredient, and that's how a lot of the studies that I think have been done more rigorously will work. That does require more participants, and of course, if you have more participants, that requires more time, more more substance, and also potentially because a lot of these are sometimes mildly compensated trials more money. Sometimes patients get a certain amount of money for participating in the trial. They sure.
0: Also... So that sounds like this first study showed some positive trends, but our author is really looking at it with a side eye.
1: Mm-hmm. She also points out that robust clinical trial evidence suggests that topical retinoids that are prescription improve clinical appearance of skin only after three to six months of treatment, with many of them showing the best improvement six months out. And I think that that's an important point also to emphasize with your patients is that, you know, when we're using a medication that's actually working on the structure of the skin and making Changes to the way genes are expressed, which is how vitamin A products work, really, because they're working as a modifier of transcription. That can take Ooh, time to is show. Bell worthy, Michelle. Oh, I feel like it is. Let's let's ring that bell there. So I like that very much. Um, so that is potentially that that 12 weeks isn't even long enough to show the effect of a medication like this Bacuchial so that i thought was very interesting. She also notes that they used a technique called profilometry which is basically t- a topographic map of the skin to look at changes in texture and the skin's pro- skin surface's profile so it's a mecha- it's a mechanically measured variable. She said although it's a very robust way to monitor topographical skin changes, you know, it's hard to believe that significant improvement would see- be seen after 12 weeks and you know, almost unusual that a medicine that's 20 times technically less efficacious than tretinoin theoretically, based off of other assays, it would be hard to say that there were significant topological changes after just 12 weeks. So if one's to believe that Bakushcheol is as powerful as retinol, one would also expect it to take some time to create the kind of physical changes. It's also a relatively small sample size, Um, 17 people is not a whole lot of people. And there wasn't really baseline measurement included in the study parameters. So she really felt that this study was basically kind of meaningless because we can't really interpret the actual effect of the active component. There's a second paper that fared better. Um, This was actually published in the British Journal of Dermatology, which is a reputable journal and has good um, kind of peer review policies. This was a study comparing Bacuchiol 0.5% cream to retinol 0.5% cream over 12 weeks in 44 patients. Um, They had good, partially, partially it was very well designed. They had a clear primary endpoint. They had power calculations. They corrected for multiple comparisons. And they did have two groups that were being compared to each other. But the author points out here there were two major methodological problems that could invalidate the findings. So the first is that this was meant to be double-blinded study. So, Luke, if I put you in a double-blinded study and you happened to have the active product or whatever, you had sub-product A, and I said, you're going to put product A on your skin twice daily.
0: I would put it on my skin twice daily because I'm a good (laughs) subject.
1: Now- How many times daily would you expect that the other group should apply the product?
0: Twice daily.
1: Mm -hmm. So that would be what the expectation would be. Um, That was not what happened in this study. And partially because retinol, as we know, can be photolabile and cause photosensitivity as well. So patients were not instructed to apply the retinol in the morning, but the Pecuchel is recommended twice daily. So I do think they could have fixed this problem. I feel like they could have given an AM and a PM tube to both study arms and that the AM tube and the PM tube on the Bacuchial side would have just contained the bacuchial same exact medicine in both tubes, and that the retinol group would have the vehicle for the retinol product and then the retinol active ingredient for the PM. And I feel like that would have solved the problem because I, f- I believe that when you get consented for a clinical trial they describe to you what the protocol will be. And so I don't I don't have access to their patient consent, but it would either have to say you will receive a compound that you're going to apply once or twice to the skin each day. I don't know if they made it clear which one was which, but it could potentially unblind the study that the group that has the retinol product and the group that has the bakuchiol product have two different protocols basically that they're following. Gotcha. Yeah, so that was one question I had. The other was um, to show similar efficacy, you'd need to do a non-inferiority trial, and we see these all the time. These non-inferiority trials with like psoriasis medications. How big are the like numbers usually when you're doing a non-inferiority trial? Like, how big was the you know patient population they did a non-inferiority trial between ustekinumab and Humira?
0: I would guess one to two hundred.
1: Huge, right? Um, so these are usually larger trials and require higher power to detect that non-inferiority, but it was a little bit different how this, this particular study was set up. So I did pull the paper, um, the original article that was being referred from the British Journal of Dermatology, which was prospective, randomized double blind assessment of topical bacuchiol and retinol for facial photo aging. And I read this paper as well. And I thought that it was well-structured, but I agree with the author of this commentary that Basically, the study didn't show that Bakushial is better than retinol, um, which was kind of how it was set up. And so, technically, that would be something you would report as like a failed or negative study. The authors conclude here that because they had similar effects, Bakushial is um, comparable to retinol in terms of ability to improve photoaging. But that wasn't what the tr- what the study was sort of designed to reflect. Um, the study was designed to reflect superiority, and that wasn't detected. Now, in one variable in the original study this author is referring to, there was somewhat a kind of rosier picture for bucoshiol than there was for retinol in that it was more tolerable. So patients had less irritation. And fewer side effects with buccutiole than they had with retinol. But the efficacy curves of the two medications are very similar to each other. And I think that the author is making a good point here that the study is a little bit underpowered to show non-inferiority. And so that makes it a little, it compromises a little bit the findings of the study itself. But I think it is um, something kind of to consider also when we're looking at scientific writing, how the hypothesis is put forward versus how the findings are presented. And so I think that that is an important thing to consider and something that takes a level of nuance that sometimes is, you know, difficult to suss out. So I think that that was impressive that the author detected that because, you know, it's just a a particularity to the study design.
0: So Bakushiol, more (laughs) hype than hero.
1: Well, you know, um, so a non-inferiority design would need more patience, more time, and of course, potentially more money. So these trials that she was talking about, um, the first one, especially, is more like a marketing trial, like the like the information we're presented with when we go to booths at the AAD. That's not to say that Bakushiol doesn't have viability and might not be beneficial, but um, there is concern, of course, whenever people sort of bandwagon when before we really understand things and how they work. And it's also really important that Bakushial has been shown already to be a contact allergen. There was a case report of a 33-year-old woman who had a history of dermatitis on her face secondary to one of these Bakushial cosmetic products.
0: A one-year history of dermatitis on Yeah, face. So she
1: kept using it, which is impressive. Um, and we do have to help protect our patients as consumers from being misled when we critically appraise these products and help them understand the medical claims they're making. The other important thing I wanted to emphasize is that in the original trial that this author was referring to, this Bukushial product had been specifically treated with sorolin depletion. So the sorrelin that's naturally a part of this plant had been intentionally removed. And that's very important because when I looked at consumer products, uh, both by the name of the plant that this medicine comes from um, and by the name Bicuchio, uh, So, but, but especially when I looked at the name of the plant. So when I looked at anything connected to this Sorelia, hold on, I have to get back to this, Cor- Coriolifolia. so Sorelia coriolifolia, and I think it might even be, ca- be called Sorelia because there are sorolens in there. When I looked at other consumer products, some of the reviews by people who use them indicated that they'd experienced significant photosensitivity. Some even talked about blistering in the sun. And so the chemicals used in these, if they're not used with intention and with safety in mind, especially when we're talking about a plant that has a lot of bioactive components, could potentially be hazardous to patients. And so I think that you know, while we have the whole beauty blogosphere sort of utilizing about this particular compound and being very excited about it, we need to temper some of that excitement with safety and data.
0: Well... I guess I can't say that I'm surprised, but I didn't know anything about Bakushiol before, and now if my patients come and ask me about it, I'll actually have some medical data behind me saying, I think that's bunk.
1: <laughs> it's a, I think it's a hot product right now on the sort of Instagram circuit slash YouTube beauty blocker circuit.
0: Would you say it's so hot right now?
1: It's so hot right now. I mean, Would so Would you hot.
0: say baby got Bakushiol? Well, let's talk about something completely different than cosmetic dermatology. Let's talk about oncology and dermatologic side effects.
1: From the sublime to the serious.
0: So I have got an article from the Annals of Oncology titled Prevention and Management of Dermatological Toxicities Related to Anti-Cancer Agents, colon, ESMO, I assume that's pronounced ESMO, Clinical Practice Guidelines. And the listed authors include M.E. LaCouture and K. Jordan, but this was a, a big committee. So ESMO is the European Society for Medical Oncology, and this was a large international multidisciplinary panel. So I thought this was helpful because dermatologic side effects related to cancer treatments are one of my weaknesses, and there are people in our department who are extremely good at it so i always feel especially dumb when they're talking (laughs) so this article is a review and guidelines about dermatologic side effects to cancer therapy and they specifically talk about five entities papulopustular exanthema hand foot syndrome paritis nail changes and alopecia since that's a lot of ground to cover, I thought we might do the same thing we did with our contact allergens article a few episodes ago, and turn this into kind of a mini series. So, going to do the first two of these today, and then we'll either do the rest of them next time, or we'll split it across two more episodes as kind of a mini series. I like it. So, you have to. I think the that I song. used. To, sorry,
1: say that again. You got to come up with a theme song.
0: Uh, you're the musician among us, Michelle. Okay, hold on, hold on, let's
1: see. So we're but what I it. lack
0: in skill, I make up for in gusto.
1: Okay, let's see. So we have to figure out the name of the segment. I guess we'll call it um, Dermatologic Toxicity Related to Anti-Cancer Agents. Do you want to do that? It
0: rolls right off the tongue. It
1: totally so. does. Okay, let's, let's, let's kind of shorten it a little bit. So Derm Toxicities of Anti-Cancer Agents. Let's call it that. Is that shorter? A little bit. Let's see. Let's, <laughs> you, let's use the same melody, so it's easy. So we'll do derm toxicities related to anti-cancer agents. <laughs>
0: I love it. So I used to call any cancer treatment chemotherapy. I think, but uh, I, that's definitely not the case anymore. So you gotta divide them up into all kinds of stuff. They do say that dermatologic adverse events are common. So with cytotoxic chemotherapies, which I guess is like old school chemotherapy, you get derm toxicities and in- 18 to 72% big, big range of patients. And then there's targeted therapies. They cause derm adverse effects in 75 to 90%. And then in immunotherapy is 30% or greater of people get dermatologic adverse events. So here's a little digression. That's probably Bellworthy. I'm ready. So adverse events in cancer treatment are graded on a scale. So if you've ever read some of the literature about these things, you have seen them referred to as like grade two, grade three, etc. So that is a scale called the Common Terminology Criteria for Adverse Events, or CTCAE. And it's sort of what how oncologists and people doing studies on these new agents grade the toxicities that can occur. So grade one is mild, grade two is moderate, grade three is severe, Grade four is life-threatening or disabling. And grade five is death. It means the patient died from that toxicity. And so they, and as far as I can tell, they often split these up into like one or two, which is like not too bad. And then three plus, which is pretty darn bad. And you got to do something about it. And they say most dermatologic adverse events to anti-cancer agents are grade one or two. However, their effect on quality of life is disproportionately large because as we know, People put a lot of their self-identity into the way their skin looks, and if somebody can see the adverse event taking place on your face, it's kind of a bigger impact on your quality of life than if other people are just unaware that it's happening. So because of that, they emphasize the importance of preventing and treating these to the best um, that we can. So we're going to talk about acneiform rash and hand-foot syndrome today. So acneiform rash is also called papulopustular exanthema. And this shows up as papules and pustules on the face, the scalp, the upper chest, the back. So the same sorts of places where you'd get acne with some symptoms associated. So paritis, stinging and pain. It's common with GFR inhibitors Mm -hmm. such as. Okay, so these names are going to be tough. I'm going to do my best here.
1: You can do this. I can do what? Oh, uh, you, uh, you can, you can, you can, you can pronounce the word. Sorry, I was, I was being encouraging.
0: Oh, you can do this. Is what you're saying? Right. That's
1: what I was saying. I was like, you can do it.
0: Erlotinib, afatinib, decam, decamitinib, osimertinib, lapatinib, and gefitinib. Those are all tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are EGFR inhibitors. They're also monoclonal antibodies that are also EGFR inhibitors, such as cetuximab, nasitumab, pertuzumab, and pentumumab. So all of those things are EGFR inhibitors that can give you this acneiform rash. MEK inhibitors can also cause it, as the pathway that they affect is downstream of the EGFR targets. And MEK inhibitors include trametinib, binimetinib, and cobimetinib. So some of these um, dermatologists are familiar with because they're used to treat melanoma or like bad squames and things like that brief terminology digression Mm -hmm. so you can sometimes tell what category a medicine is or at least put yourself in a similar ballpark if you know some of this terminology um, the nomenclature that people have agreed upon so if it has metinib that's a mech inhibitor i don't know why it's not mechanib but it's not it's metinib so trimetinib cobimetinib etc mech inhibitors so especially if you're like a resident who's going to take an exam or something even if you've never heard of the medicine before if you see that met there you can be pretty sure it's a mech inhibitor and then inib are like tyrosine kinase inhibitors and i think specifically if it's a tinib with a t it's an egfr inhibitor but i'm not 100 on that do you know any more than i do about that
1: I think you're on, on track with that. So the inhibi- ending is really just like I think for inhibitor.
0: Yeah, specifically for tyrosine kinase inhibitors because they're small molecules, I guess, and they separate that from the monoclonal antibodies, which have like the MAB
1: suffix. Yeah, yeah I think that's part of it. Anything with the AB, like at the very end, AB, that's an antibody. And then it's like ZUMAB is humanized antibody. ZMAB with the X is chimeric, and MUMAB is human.
0: So hopefully that will be somewhat helpful. I found the tinib, T-I-N-I-B, as EGFR inhibitors, and met as the MEK inhibitors to be the most useful for me. So anyway, this acneiform rash develops within days to weeks of starting the inciting agent. It is very common; seventy-five to ninety percent of people on these meds get it, and ten to twenty percent of them have it really bad, grade three to four. And Remember, four is disabling. Mm-hmm. The good news, if people get it, are that the occurrence of the rash and its severity are positively correlated with therapy response. I mean, something's going on, mm-hmm. so I think that might be bellworthy too. Because every so often people will ask me, you know, does the fact that I have this rash mean that my medicine's working? Well, yes. Sorry that you have this bad rash, though. They also point out that bacterial colonization or superinfection is common in this rash. About 38% of people have that. So to prevent it, you're nice to your skin. So avoid washing with hot water. Avoid skin irritants, such as over-the-counter acne therapies that people might be tempted to use if they have something that looks a lot like acne on their face. Nice moisturizers or ointments. They recommend urea-containing creams, 5-10% to for the body. Look out for the sun. Remember, you're being nice to your skin. Put on a gentle sunscreen. Okay, All that's pretty much normal for dermatology stuff. But oral antibiotics, to prevent it. So Even if people don't have the rash, remember, super common, up to 90% of people. So just give them the oral antibiotics at the start of therapy, and then they take it for six weeks. Tetracyclines have good data. They suggest minocycline 100 milligrams daily, for example. Second line... For people who can't do tetracyclines include cephalosporins like cefidroxil. So this is possibly Bellworthy. This is my second line acne therapy for patients who are like pregnant, so they can't take the tetracyclines. So cefidroxil, 500 milligrams BID. They also suggest Bactrim for this particular purpose. If somebody actually gets the rash to treat it, you use topical steroids plus those PO antibiotics. And if they have grade three plus, you use systemic steroids for a little bit and you discontinue the inciting agent until the rash decreases to grade one or less.
1: I like that a lot. Um, I have some thoughts about why that might happen. I've treated some patients that have this EGFR-related pustular eruption, and a few of them we actually did some biopsies on just to try to figure out how we could make this better. It's interesting. The EGFR seems to be super important in maintaining the follicular integrity, and so different than normal acne where it's just sort of a dilated but otherwise relatively normal-ish follicle. A lot of these follicles were just destroyed. Um, So I think that it might have something to do with the loss of maintenance of the follicular architecture. But I think that point you brought up about using steroids to treat this rash is something that I think is a, a knowledge gap for a lot of people because we're usually taught not to put steroids on acne unless it's really severe. But I think that the topicals can actually be a useful management tool with the subset of patients. So...
0: I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there um, just about these adverse effects in general, about this stuff and about this rash. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this article today, especially since we're going to come back to it in the future. So rather than talk about another one of these adverse effects right now, I will leave that as a cliffhanger Woo-hoo! and we can move on to your next article, Michelle.
1: I like it. So my next article is out of the JAD Online in the Surgical Pearls section. And this is a lovely little communication based off of the office-based surgical treatment of hydrodonitis superativa the unroofing technique, by authors Nicholas Brownstone and Drew Saylor. And they wanted to describe how to unroof these mean sinus tracts that develop as a structural problem in patients with HS. These tunnels and fistulas then drive chronic inflammation because it's basically impossible to get them to be completely free from bacteria. And it's also very difficult to deal with the inflammation that's engendered around their presence. And so unroofing can be performed with just a few resources at at the outpatient setting to help improve the kind of quality of life of these patients, decrease drainage, pain, and infection. The technique involves inserting a probe into the tunnels and sinuses of HS to find the extent of the disease, and then there's systematic removal of the involved tissue down to the base of the tracts. This, pre- this is performed with local anesthesia, and fluid from the initial lidocaine injections actually can help you identify the subtle sinus tracts. I'm sure all of us that treat hydrodinitis supertiva and have done intralesional steroid injections, although we discussed previously that that might not always make a much bigger difference than saline injections... But all of us that have injected lesions of hydronitis suppurativa have probably had the experience where you put the acinalog into a part of the area that looks inflamed, and then it comes dribbling out of another hole that you didn't realize was related to the area you were treating. So the subcutaneous and subterranean tunnels that occur in hidradenitis suppurativa can be relatively complex, and this fluid movement can actually potentially help you to identify those things. You can also use tumescent lidocaine for larger areas. Um, adjacent dimples or skin alteration is usually going to indicate indi- uh, a that's connected and that should be included in the anesthetized area. So in the photographs included in this publication, they highlight how they've marked out the tissue, how the tissue appears after anesthesia, the insertion of the probe, and the resulting unroofed um, area that is then allowed to heal by secondary intention. So they then push or squeeze the area to help reveal the hidden involvement as the drainage kind of leans to those tunnels. They recommend that you use a six to seven inch blunt, malleable, and straight edge double-ended surgical probe to very gently explore these tracts and to avoid making new ones. Because if you're rough, you could certainly create what they call here a pseudo tract, which is basically pushing through the sinus tract into the inflamed dermis. Some of the tunnels might also be too deep to be explored outpatient. If you're getting into brachial plexus territory, you may need to call it and switch to an actual operating room. But the superficial ones can be very satisfactorily treated this way. Um, After you unroof the tract and you remove any exudate and get down to the base of the sinus, you leave the uh, wound to heal by secondary intention because it has lower rates of complication, recurrence, and infection. You have to do good patient selection for this because it will take the patient five ish weeks to heal, and they're often pain-free by six weeks with low visual analog scores for axillary and inguinal regions. So this is a a procedure that can be helpful for patients. Um, I've seen and treated some patients who've had unroofing and who've also had skin grafting, and there's not a huge difference in terms of cosmesis. The patients will tell you, though, that the unroofing procedure was less painful for them than the skin grafting procedure partially because they don't have a skin graft site. Skin graft sites are very painful. And the unroofing area actually feels much better relatively quickly, while the discomfort from an area that's been used as a harvest site for a skin graft can have pain for, very, for a significant period of time. I thought this was a great technique. I've used it in some patients with guidance. I think that it is beneficial if you have superficially oriented sinus tracts, but patient selection is key.
0: In episode 14... We had a guest on, Chris Syed, who's an HS expert and a proponent of this technique as well. And I had been in email contact with him to kind of learn about his approach, which is basically the same as this one. So I have used this technique on one patient. I've only had one so far who's been a good candidate. Um, but I thought she got a good result, basically just probed around with the the probe and then used a scissors or a scalpel to kind of remove the skin over the top of the probe once I've you know, found the sinus tract and then used a curette to scoop out the junk. And then once I felt like I was at normal tissue, we just sort of put a bunch of Vaseline on there and some big bandages.
1: Did you use any cautery to stop the bleeding?
0: Nope. I don't think so. Maybe a little bit, not a lot anyways. And talking with the patient afterward, her main problem was that the drainage from the open wounds was annoying. So I think she had to change the dressing several times over the course of a day for a while, but not a lot of pain. And I thought the, the result was pretty good.
1: That's awesome. I think that's wonderful. Back in episode 39, we reviewed an article about the management of surgical smoke and the risk in the surgical plume. And um, there has been a nice comment um, on that in the JAD online. Um, by author Carlos Gustavo Wambier, friend of the show, and Flavio Luis Beltrame, talking what's up, about Carlos? hey Carlos, what's up? Um, about sort of how to mitigate the potential risk for patients and for also of course surgeons. Um, We do want to think about protection from the effects of the surgical plume. Uh, Chemical and pharmaceutical and painting industries are all pretty aware of the fact that volatile compounds that we can smell um, potentially can cause damage to the respiratory tree, but there seems to be a knowledge gap for physicians. And Carlos rightfully points out that this often starts in medical school. I feel like there's this take it mentality when you become a doctor where you're sort of expected to be a little bit more than human. And so we're exposed to these things like formaldehyde fumes in gross anatomy or the cautery plume in surgery or, you know, long work hours and not being allowed to go to the bathroom. There's almost this superhuman, this is kind of a superhero episode. There's this superhero or superhuman perceiving of, of physicians where we don't seem to garner the same protective instinct that might be in place for other people. And so for respiratory protection against chemicals in electrosurgical or laser smoke, Um, High-efficiency particulate air filters, which were mentioned in the article we reviewed, can take some of the fine particles out, but not take all the chemical molecules out of the circulation. And when you're a regular surgeon, you might have exposure to surgical smoke containing things like chemical vapors. They might even contain volatile compounds. So um, Carlos here is recommending the use of an activated carbon layer as a filter to help improve the air quality that the surgeon and assistants are breathing. Um, The cartridges and gas masks, which are used sometimes in industrial applications are kind of heavy and would be difficult to use in a surgical procedure and also would impair vocal communication. But you Uh, would look super cool, but you would look really cool and everyone would take you very seriously. Like, and you could sound like Darth Vader, which would be fun to be like, Luke, (laughs) Luke, pick up that probe. Okay. So the activated carbon layer in an N95 can potentially be beneficial in this setting uh, to allow kind of a more usable profile for a personal protective device and also to help protect um, the, the surgeon and assistant. So the use of disposable active activated carbon masks um, is being recommended here uh, to help decrease the exposure to chemicals contained in laser and electrosurgical smoke. He also recommends that that should be used for formaldehyde exposure during anatomy class uh, and also for phenyl croton peels, um, surgeries with necrotic wounds or infected wounds that could potentially erosolias fine particles and help kind of treat human, treat surgeons and physicians as human beings. And I I personally, when I have to gross sometimes, because I am a uh, dermatopathologist as well, and sometimes I have to go into the gross lab and help put the specimen from formalin into a block. I like to wear an N95 when I'm doing that because formaldehyde gives me a headache pretty badly. Um, So I think that the activated carbon filter would be a reasonable thing to implement to help add protection to that.
0: Where do I get these and how much do they cost? I know. I
1: actually have asked him to let me know which brand he actually typically uses and um, how easy it is to get a hold of these, especially right now. And so when we get an update from that, I think we could include it on the website.
0: Well, Michelle, mm-hmm. do you ever have parents ask you, what's the best baby wipe to use?
1: Yes. In fact, I had that question just yesterday, I think, from a very granola crunchy mama. So... She wanted to have something all natural. What did you find out about that?
0: Well, the next article proposes to answer that. So this is an article out of a journal called Pediatrics and Neonatology, which is put out by the Taiwan Pediatric Association. And the title is the Basics Baby Skin Integrity Comparison Survey Study, colon a prospective experimental study using maternal observations to report the effect of baby wipes on the incidence of irritant diaper dermatitis in infants from birth to eight weeks of age. The authors include Alan Price and Fiona McVeigh Phipps in the United Kingdom. So this study compared 700 plus newborns from the greater Manchester region, which was chosen because of its multi-ethnic composition, apparently, so 700 plus newborns. So think of those cute, tiny babies. I liked reading this study because I like thinking about tiny babies. Aww. Three separate arms, each provided with a different brand of baby wipe. Very and amazing. this is so that they can compare the incidence and severity of what they refer to as irritant diaper dermatitis or IDD. One brand of wipes contained, quote, only two ingredients. And the others contain, quote, more than three times as many. So, doing some math, I guess they each contain seven or more ingredients. (laughs) So, spoilers, this study was run by Industry, Ah. a company called Irish Breeze, which produces a product called Water Wipes, Mm -hmm. which, if you look them up, contain 99.9% water, plus grapefruit seed extract, and according to their website, a, quote, trace amount of benzalconium chloride which is a preservative but i guess a trace amount doesn't count as an ingredient which is why they could say in the study they only had two ingredients water plus grapefruit seed extract mm-hmm. so expectant mothers received um f- nine weeks worth of free quote nappies which is so cute that's what mm-hmm. british people call diapers <laughs> Um, all of these diapers were the same brand. um, And then they got the wipes of whatever brand and they got a smartphone app. So this was a pretty slick way to do it. So the smartphone app prompted them every day to rate their baby's degree of irritant diaper dermatitis. And it also showed some diagrams for reference. So they could just, you know, get a prompt, take a look at the picture, take a look at their baby's butt, pick a number between one to five. And then they were done for the day. Pretty good. So they, the, the irritant dermatitis severity was rated on this one to five scale. And as you might have guessed, the water wipes performed the best. <laughs> so there's a, lot, a fair amount of other stuff I'd like to talk about, but I was a lot more excited about this article before I discovered in tiny print that this was basically run by industry, which makes me much more suspicious. So not that industry can't produce good stuff, but you got to think that if they had shown results that didn't favor their product, that they wouldn't have published it. And so there's a number of biases that can be introduced. And so this kind of gets back to what you were talking about, about the Bakushiol, how we've got to be extra careful when we look at studies that are performed by industry. Mm -hmm. So on close inspection, the difference the water wipes created, I'm not sure that it was significant. So the difference seemed to be that if you had a rash and you were a baby who is getting the water wipes your rash would last about a day and if you were a baby who is getting some other kind of wipe you would have a rash that lasted for one and a half days instead of one day and there was a statistically significant p-value so it that's like real that happens but is that clinically significant one day versus one and a half days i don't know i mean i like tiny newborn babies i want them to not have a rash but half a day tough to tell Um, They did point out that they were unable to blind participants as to the brand. So they all the brands were, you know, in their normal branded packaging. As far as the irritant diaper dermatitis grading. So they came up with a scale. So another problem is that this isn't like a validated scale that's used in neonatology. This is what they used. I mean, it makes sense, but it's true that it's not validated. So grade one irritant diaper dermatitis was nothing. No redness or rash. Grade 2 was some redness and a mild rash. And grade 3 was when broken skin and discomfort were evident. And grade 4 and 5 were more severe. They considered grade 3, quote, clinically significant. They didn't exactly say why. And again, you can become suspicious that maybe if what they have shown was that fewer babies get grade three rash with their water wipes than they could have arbitrarily selected that as the clinically significant grade so that they could sort of show that their product was more clinically significant but they did say that grade three was where broken skin and discomfort were evident so i kind of buy that that could still count as clinically significant um more interesting than which wipe did better than others i thought were just some basic information about irritant diaper dermatitis so bad diaper dermatitis grade four to five was pretty rare only two to three percent of newborn babies but some rash was pretty common so 25 percent of the babies had at least one day of grade three plus irritant diaper dermatitis during the study period so a quarter of them over eight weeks had what is considered clinically significant diaper rash Uh, The babies with the water wipes, 19% of them had at least one day of grade three rash. The other brands were 25 to 30%. They did not report the p-values here, so we can't tell if that's statistically significant or not. They did say there were no allergic reactions. So I know, especially as pediatric dermatologists, we're fairly suspicious of wipes, but I think the ingredients in most wipes, even those with seven plus ingredients, are unlikely to cause allergic contact dermatitis. They say overall the rash score was 1.43 and the number of days with no rash was 34 out of 55 days on average. So 62% of the days the babies had no rash, which is kind of a bummer because 38% of the time they had some rash. True. Sucks. Yeah. So other things that influence the rash. So you would have a decreased rash if you were a baby girl instead of a baby boy So the incidence rate ratio is 0.77. And if you were a baby and your mom had mixed ethnicity, you were less likely to have a rash by a lot. The incident rate ratio is 0.29 compared to, you know, 1.0 for a white mother. You would get more rash if you were a second or subsequent baby. Those (laughs) of us with two or more babies can postulate reasons why that might be. Um, And, Above average annual household income, you had a greater risk of having a rash. So uh, I I do give credit to the authors. They don't, you know, come right out and say, go out and buy some water wipes. They say, is fewer ingredients better? Maybe, but it's not possible to determine whether it was the exclusion or inclusion of a specific ingredient that causes the difference. And also, I have to admit, I'm not convinced based on the statistics in here. Why not just use random cloths with tap water? Well, the authors um, refer to two, quote, seminal studies that have shown no greater skin irritation with baby wipes versus just, you know, cotton cloths with tap water. And they say baby wipes were associated with a decrease in skin irritation compared to cloth wipes, and parents report that baby wipes are more convenient. I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. So on Amazon, water wipes are six cents each. Pampers Sensitive, which was the best seller that popped up when I typed in diaper newborn, three cents each, so half as expensive. And then what I, you know, I have two kids. I've been using Baby wipes for six years, and we always get the Kirkland brand from Costco, and those are two cents a piece. So these aren't like expensive products, but you do go through a lot of these over the course of your kid going through diapers, Um, and the water wipes are noticeably more expensive. Also, part of me just wondered why they had 99.9% water and a little bit of grapefruit seed extract. Again, I'm skeptical of industry. No offense, industry. You do some great some great work and you've got some great products out there. But I wonder if it's just so that they could like patent it. You probably can't just patent a cloth with water on it, but a cloth with water and a little bit of something else, you could probably patent that.
1: It might be that. I think grapefruit seed extract is also used as a preservative, as a, as a low-level preservative. It can kill bacteria and fungus. Um, and it also sort of preserves and disinfects water at certain concentrations. So I think that's probably why they were using it, to keep the water from just being stale in the package. Or once you know, you're know you opening and using the package, prevent bacteria from growing in the surface.
0: I wondered about that too. Um, there were a couple websites that mentioned that. And if that's the case, then I, I think it's kind of a good idea. Grapefruit seed extract, that just sounds like it would appeal to a lot of patients. And if you can use that instead of benzalkonium chloride or whatever, eh, maybe more people should be using grapefruit seed extract. Um, that's all. I'm the, So I feel that water wipes are probably, you know, at least comparable to some of these other products that are out there, possibly better and that they reduce rash. And so if I have parents who ask me, I can go into some of this stuff with them. I thought it was more interesting to see, again, as I said, some of the baseline statistics, like that baby girls got less rash than baby boys. And then we can start sort of wondering why that is, and if we could move the needle in some direction or other. Um, but I thought this was a good article. Uh, I thought it was very well done. So even though I complain about history sometimes, they did a good job with this one, even if some of the statistics I don't think are as clear as I would like them to be. It's a very well done study. And I do have parents ask me this stuff. And now at least I have some basis to think about it some more.
1: I love that. I think that's great. The, the crunchy granola moms in my practice usually are using those water wipes because of that marketing where it's supposed to be very pure and there's not a lot going on in there. And, you know, I think that um, avoiding contact sensitization is very important. Benzalkonium chloride can be uh, contact allergen. So it does, you know, potentially play a role with any of the wipe things. So, so Luke, as a, a nerdling, a fellow nerdling like myself, I know you're also like a, a, a sucker for a good origin story. And we had one today with Bacushio. I would like to now discuss the origin story of a real hero of dermatology, in my personal opinion, Minoxidil. Are you ready?
0: Interestingly... My great uncle was involved in originally. I guess I won't use the term creating it, but was somehow on the team that was originally involved in PO Minoxidil for blood pressure.
1: So I'm actually lecturing to the choir here, but I shall I shall do my level. According
0: list. to what my mom has told me, anyways, A
1: family lore. Well, so just in case, I, I shall I shall um, entertain you with the tale here. So Minoxidil actually was first looked at in the 50s by Upjohn, the company who later became Pfizer. And at first they were trying to use it to treat Ulcers. Um, They used it in dogs to kind of check on its efficacy, but it didn't work for ulcers. However, it did demonstrate its efficacy as a powerful vasodilator. So they started looking towards how to use it potentially in hypertension. They got permission from the FDA to test it for hypertension, and they approached a, a physician named Charles A. Chitzi, who was a professor at University of Colorado, and he conducted some studies. Some of them showed some unexpected hair growth, especially in female participants. So. This gentleman then consulted two dermatologists. So, the dermatologists that were involved in this were Gunter Kahn and Paul Grant. Um, Paul Grant was actually in his residency at this point, and Gunter Kahn was a young faculty member. And he wanted to determine if this was actually doing something with hair. So, they actually did some very interesting things. They got a small amount of the medication. Um, didn't really explain what they were going to do with it, and then sort of ran their own experiment where they put a 1% solution with some alcohol-based compounds onto a patch that these two, uh, the dermatology resident, the young dermatology attending, another dermatology resident, and a secretary. So these four people were putting these patches on their upper arms each day as part of this experiment. Um, interestingly, Khan's skin got very irritated and red. So he was starting to worry that this was going to be a failed experiment, but Grant noticed that he had increased hair growth and was very excited about it. So they were actually flown to Michigan to meet with the Upjohn executives in December of 71. And later that month, Upjohn filed for a patent for the baldness treatment potentially. And then, believe me, listen to what happened. The company actually reported the two dermatologists to the FDA for doing unauthorized experiments on humans. So What? don't do any favors for a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company seems to be the takeaway from here. Man, so that, industry
0: has had a, a bad turn of things in this episode. I
1: know. This is coming across very anti-industry right now. Yeah,
0: we're, we're okay with industry if anyone is interested in sponsorship.
1: Yes. And, and I'm happy with the minoxidil and productions now. And there's a happy ending to the story. So... um these two dermatologists were kind of disappointed that their work was sort of a little bit bogarted um, by the company. So they did hire a lawyer and they also filed for a patent. Um, those two patents basically ran into each other and the U.S. Patent Office noticed the overlap and then there was a meeting to resolve the issue and there were appropriate royalties then given to the two physicians, which was very nice. Wow. interesting Sounds what's-
0: like a real hairy situation. Though. It's
1: very hairy. What, what's interesting to me too is that Dr. Khan was actually apparently allergic to uh, the minoxidil. So he was notably a handsome gentleman like the chair of our department. Um, so he actually was a gentleman who didn't have a whole lot of hair on top of his head and, um, you know, helped invent a product he couldn't use because of allergy, which I thought was kind of fantastic. But Irony. Where's I know, right? So all of that's leading up to this excellent article here, which was published in the JAD. It is a review of the efficacy and safety of oral minoxidil treatment for hair loss by doctors, uh, sorry, by Bachelor of Science, Michael Randolph, and Dr. Antonella Tosti, who's just a fantastic human being and a leading hair researcher. So I was very excited to see her name on this and very excited to read the publication.
0: I believe Uh, we've uh, reviewed some of her work
1: before. We have. She's very prolific. So this is discussing the way patients have been using topical minoxidil as well as oral minoxidil. And basically, the end result of all of this is going to be low-dose oral minoxidil is effective, and it's safe at low doses. Um, there weren't any significant problems with EKG alterations or peripheral edema that weren't resolvable and was generally safe in a healthy population, even up to five milligrams a day. So that's the the short end of, you know, describing this. I'll go into a tiny bit more detail. Um, and Dr. Tosti right now is at the University of Miami, and she is just fantastic. So... We know we've used topical minoxidil since the origin story there came out in the 70s-ish, and it's something that's used very frequently. It's relatively easy to obtain, but for a lot of patients, the adherence to applying the medication twice a day is difficult. Um, Undesirable hair texture can result from some of the products, and some patients do develop skin irritation from it. So oral minoxidil has been proposed as a safe alternative, and this study is going to review those articles to determine how it can be best used. So she had 16 studies with 622 patients, and they looked at the use of oral minoxidil as the primary treatment modality for hair loss. Androgenetic alopecia was the most commonly studied condition, but telogen effluvium, like in planopilaris, loose antigen syndrome. Monolithrix, alopecia areata, and permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia also had studies which showed favorable results. And I'm extremely excited to see loose antigen on this list because if you've ever treated loose antigen, it's just miserable until the kid grows out of it and the parents are worried the child's going to be bald forever and it's just a very difficult thing to do. But potentially having a medication that helps improve that is very attractive.
0: Yes, I can think of one or two. It's their parents. The kids don't care. It's one parents, or two parents yeah. that have been really upset that I couldn't suggest anything beyond topical minoxidil for their child's loose syndrome. So I guess now we can say we can give it to them by mouth. But don't just go buy some at the store and drink it.
1: No, do not do that. That is not very easy to calibrate and could potentially be disastrous. So when you use it for an antihypertensive, it's usually used at doses between 10 to 40 milligrams daily. When it's used for hair regrowth in women, it's usually used between 0.25 milligrams up to, to, in my opinion, like 1.25, but probably max dose in a woman would be 2.5 milligrams. And in men, you do have to use more, um, typically 2.5 milligrams to 5 milligrams in men. But I think there's a lot of pimpable content in here, so I'll briefly go over that. Um, This is an FDA-approved medication to treat androgenetic alopecia. The product insert has it approved for the vertex balding, not for the frontal hairline, but it works just fine on the frontal hairline. It works better on the vertex than it works on the frontal hairline, but it's fine to use on the frontal hairline. Um, It was approved for men and for women as in different variations, including a 2% and 5% solution, a 5% foam, and then um, the 5% foam for women. And it's very interesting how it works. So people don't really 100% understand how it helps with hair growth, but it's kind of cool how it interacts with the hair follicle. So minoxidil actually has to be turned into its active derivative, which is minoxidil sulf- sulfate, by follicular sulfotransferase. So that's a little pimple right there. So that follicular sulfotransferase is actually what converts minoxidil into its active derivative, minoxidil sulfate. And that's a key step in the medication's effectiveness. There seems to be some ion balance um, activity that occurs related to the minoxidil's action on the hair follicle, but that's, now, that's still not completely elucidated. It does help improve hair growth because it shortens the telogen phase, so shortening the, the shedding phase, and it lengthens the antigen phase. So increases how long the hair is growing, allowing minoxidil for progressive...
0: minimizes telogen.
1: Minimizes telogen. I love that. I think that's awesome. So you get progressive growth of an increase in hair follicle diameter as well as length. You do have to continue to apply the topical. To continue to get the benefit, or it will regress. Um, Most patients tolerate it well, but some people can get itchy or scaly. Um, You can get hypertrichosis if you put it in the wrong place, and contact dermatitis can develop over time. It's funny the fight we have to have with people to get them to use topical minoxidil, because I don't have to fight with my patients to get them to brush their teeth every day. If you stop brushing your teeth, you stop losing the benefit of brushing your teeth. If you stop using your minoxidil, you stop getting the benefit of using the minoxidil. But I do have some patients that just there's sort of a brain pause where they just don't want to use the medication every day or they don't want to commit to using it continuously. Um, What
0: if I invented a pill that you could take for three months and then your teeth would be clean forever without having to brush them? Wouldn't that be preferable?
1: (laughs) That would be preferable if that existed. That'd be kind of exciting. But stay tuned. I don't think that's quite yet where we are with the state of science. All right. So the top one I, to...
0: I can't say that I have it.
1: <laughs> it's like mega fluoride or something like that. Don't, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Okay. So anyway, some people don't like to use the medication. Um, you do have to make patients aware that there's temporary shedding that can happen after initiation of either topical or oral treatments. Um, and some patients will discontinue if you don't warn them about that because they're like, it's getting worse. And you're like, that actually means it's about to start working really well because the hair shed is actually the old telogen hairs getting pushed out of the scalp by growing antigen hairs. So it's a positive sign when you see that. The problem Are you is- saying
0: that anagen is the growing phase and telogen is the resting phase before it falls out?
1: I am. That's pimpable, Yes, I like that.
0: I always had a hard time remembering that.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that. So you can tell it's shedding when you have telogen. So- oh,
0: that's good. Also, yeah. the telogen is at the tail end. I'm not sure if that's as
1: good. Yeah, or it makes you, makes you have tears. You could say that. If you've ever treated a hair loss patient, you know they do occasionally have some tears or tearfulness over the, over the problem. So oral minoxidil has just been recently used for the treatment of hair loss. It hadn't been used previously because of the side effects of the medication when used at therapeutic doses for hypertension. So 10 to 40 milligrams daily is often used for calcitrant hyper, hypertension, but it can cause sodium and fluid retention at that strength, especially if the patient has renal conditions. It can also cause edema and weight Gain and even pulmonary congestion. So, if you have a patient that's got a complicated cardiorespiratory tree, I kind of am a little more cautious about using this medication. When it's being used to treat hair loss, I'm sorry. When it's being used to treat hypertension, people are sometimes given beta blockers along with the the um, the oral minoxidil to treat the blood pressure, and that helps to decrease the heart rate problems and decrease the sodium and fluid retention. Beta blockers might be slightly less desirable in hair loss patients, however, because beta blockers are one of the medications that can sometimes cause hair shedding. And so that's not necessarily something we love to cause in a patient we're trying to treat for hair loss. Ding um, ding. Yes. Yes. So pulmonary edema and pulmonary hypertension have also been reported as possible side effects of higher dose oral minoxidil, although there's not really a direct causal relationship proven, but I think that has to do with just overall body edema. And then cardiac conditions associated with the medication at full dose include reflex tachycardia less commonly EKG changes, and pericardial effusion or congestive heart failure in patients with renal disease. So all of these are very serious sounding complications, but these are all occurring at a typical maintenance dose for an antihypertensive, so 10 to 40 milligrams daily. Using low-dose kind of gets around these problems and has recently become more popular. I have several patients I treat with low-dose oral monoxidil. And all of the patients I've started on that treatment have been happy with it and wanted to continue. I am usually starting them on 0.25 milligrams twice daily and then titrating up as needed for efficacy. So in this paper, she looks at these 16 studies with 622 patients, and she wants to determine basically the different regimens that were utilized. I think the best way to go over this is kind of to go over the table in the back of the article. Um, because that has a very nice way to compare and contrast the different studies. So she's laid these out very nicely in the kind of additional materials here in the background. And some of the ones that really drew my attention were the studies for things that weren't androgenetic alopecia, because I think that the hair loss community is getting fairly comfortable with the idea that androgenetic alopecia can be appropriately treated and safely treated in patients who have um, relatively good levels of health, with low dose indications. So anywhere between 0.25 to in ladies 2.5 milligrams daily and in men five to ten milligrams daily. I think five is a little more comfortable for me. Was very well tolerated with few side effects, a few patients having hypertrichosis on the higher end of the dosing spectrum, um, but a lot of patients continuing treatment and a lot of patients expressing satisfaction with the therapeutic regimen. Some of the studies that really drew my attention because they're a little bit more novel in utilizing the medication for things that aren't androgenetic alopecia include the study here by Vano Galvan et al, where they looked at lichen planopilaris and actually used 0.5 milligrams of minoxidil daily and 2.5 milligrams of minoxidil daily for men and women with lichen planopilaris. And they noticed that a good percentage of their patients improved. So 39 out of their patients, so 20 out of their 51, had improved hair thickness Um, Some of them, so 53% remained stable. Only 8% had worsening hair thickness, and improvement was more likely with higher doses in male patients. The diffuse LPP was also better to respond than patchy LPP. But I thought that was a fascinating idea to be able to use um, the oral minoxidil for patients like in planopilaris. Do you think
0: it's just improving some aspect of concomitant androgenetic alopecia?
1: I think that it might have something a little bit more complicated at play because we still don't 100% understand why minoxidil works the way that it does. But we do know some of the other things that we use for, for patients who have lichen planopilaris, like finasteride, kind of modify the expression of lipids and potentially some of the integrity of the follicular epithelium. And I don't know if that's part of what minoxidil is doing here. I'm interested in it, though. There's another study. We
0: do need better treatments for LPP. That's for
1: sure. Absolutely. Um, I was also excited to see they had another study that looked at traction alopecia, and they gave patients with traction alopecia. It was a small study. They had only had four patients with the traction alopecia, but they gave them one point two five milligrams of minoxidil nightly, and they did find uh, improvement. Uh, decreased hair shedding, and increased scalp hair. It wasn't in the majority of their patients, unfortunately. Traction alopecia can sometimes be a little bit end stage, but it's a reasonable thing to at least try for a person. Their patient with loose antigen hair syndrome was an 11-year-old, and she had tried the 5% topical solution for years for her loose antigen syndrome in the kind of study that that was presented in, she took the lotus oral minoxidil 0.5 milligrams daily and demonstrated improvement in hair shedding and density in the first three months and was able to discontinue after 12 months with no recurrence. But fascinatingly in this child, the hair color changed from reddish brown to light brown. So the color changed actually in the hair, which is kind of fascinating. I have had other patients tell me that their hair darkens when they're using um either topical or oral minoxidil. And I think that that may be a hint into how it's working, but I still don't think we completely understand that.
0: Well, you know? kids' hair color just changes as they age too. I mean, that's true. So maybe true. it that's was true. not related to the drug.
1: That is possible. And then they had another study with patients with minelothrix, and they had two patients where they used 0. 0.25 to 5 milligrams of minoxidil demonstrating uh, hair growth with reduced breakage and increased volume and length in one patient, and that was maintained through two years of follow-up. And the second patient had decreased shedding, improved hair density, and maintained improvement through 18 months post-follow-up, which I thought was awesome. There were there was a study by Carlos Wambier, also a um, friend of the show, about alopecia areata, where he combined tofacitinib along with um, oral minoxidil and was able to improve scalp regrowth um, in those patients an improvement in their shedding with combination therapy. So the kind of takeaway from that the study was that combination tofacitinib and oral minoxidil may be more efficacious than just tofacitinib monotherapy alone in patients with alopecia areata. And they even had a patient who had permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, which many of us would consider to be kind of end stage and very difficult to treat. But the patient did have um, significant regrowth of hair within six weeks. And after one year, she had increases in her um, telogen follicles and a reversal of miniaturization. So, uh, sorry, decreases in her telogen follicles and a reversal of follicular miniaturization. So, for some hair conditions that might be considered sort of a lost cause, some of these patients actually demonstrated some pretty significant improvement. She also has a nice table looking at the dosage regimens um, between males and females and the percentages of hypertrichosis, edema, hypotension, and EKG changes. I thought this was a very elegant way to present these data. And um, notably, of course, the patients with the highest dose of minoxidil had the highest rates of hypertrichosis. The patients with the highest dose of minoxidil also had the highest rates of um, lower limb edema hypotension was more common um, in a lower dose, but that might be possibly because the lower dose studies skew female just a little bit, and hypotension is more commonly observed in female patients treated with oral monoxidal than it is in male patients. Reassuringly, EKG changes were very rare and did not require cessation of treatment. And so as a person who is very enthusiastic about oral medoxidil at low doses for patients who have hair loss, and I'm excited to have the option of potentially using it for different types of hair loss, I was encouraged to see that it was very safe in most patients. Um, When you're using it at the doses we utilize it at, you don't see those cardiopulmonary side effects that can be seen at the 10 to 40 milligram strength. And it's usually very mild or manageable side effects in patients. So I think that this is a great article to give us confidence in using this emerging treatment for alopecia. And for several of my patients that I've used this for, this has been significantly life-changing for them. You know, patients who were extremely self-conscious about their scalp showing and and were having social problems because of you know not being able to go out in public without having some kind of camouflage agent on it. That this has been a very useful treatment. So I'm encouraged to see safety data behind this, and very excited for this. Um, kind of article to come out so excellent work i think by by dr tosti and bachelor of science michael randolph
0: so we discussed maybe one of the studies cited here but a study about minoxidil back in episode one
1: we did and it was one of these studies actually so it was used it for a few
0: patients but i get the feeling that i don't use it quite as frequently as you do probably because of my patient population Mm -hmm. So just walk me through, like, what's your starting dose for a typical man or woman who wants it for androgenetic alopecia, and then after what time frame do you increase it and by how much?
1: So when I'm starting it in a woman, I will usually use 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams twice daily. Some of that's depending on their age and health, and some of it's dependent upon body size. Um, And I will use that along with spironolactone in appropriate candidates. So people who don't have risk factors that would make spironolactone Um, less attractive, like concomitant use of any kind of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. I don't want to put two potassium-sparing diuretics in a person's body. Um, Once I have got them on their dose of either 0.25 or 0.5 Milligrams of minoxidil twice daily, and with this runalactone in appropriate patients, I usually see them back at about three months. I check for tolerability. I look with my dermatoscope. I think trichoscopy is a very helpful way to manage hair loss patients. So we have serial photography in the chart, and we can start to determine if we're seeing any signs of follicular miniaturization being reversed, or improvement in hair shaft thickness um, or density, and if the patient is, you know, encouraged by the results but would like to kind of increase the dose, or if the patient's not having trouble tolerating the medication and I don't see as much of an effect as I would like to see, then I can dose adjust the patient. Um, For the patients I started on 0.5, I would then go up to 0.75 milligrams twice a day, or they could do 1.25 milligrams once a day, which is a half of the two-and-a-half milligram tablet, which comes commercially. The commercially abstained tablet is less expensive for the patients than the compounded medication, so that's sometimes also a consideration. And I usually do have blood pressure checks just on the chart. Really, I don't think that's 100% necessary, but I think that that's something that shows the patient I'm taking this seriously and paying attention to it. And it also signals to them that if they don't feel you know, completely well or something, they might need to check their blood pressure. I also have a very serious conversation with every patient I start this medication on about the fact that you cannot take this medication the American way. So, you know, if medication is prescribed usually one in the morning and one at night, you know, the American way is I'm going to take 10 all at once because if one is good, 10 is better. This is not a medication you can do that with. And so I have a very serious conversation with my my patients before I start the medication and make sure that it's very clear that they're not to dose adjust on their own. Um, But I've had really good success with the vast majority of my patients with this medication. They've been happy with it. Side effects have been minimal, um, and patients really feel better about their overall hair density, and I see the results. So I'm encouraged by it quite a lot.
0: What's your starting dose for men?
1: For men, I usually start at two and a half milligrams twice a day. And most men respond pretty well to that. Um, They're also excited to have an option that isn't finasteride, because when you're talking about a young man who's got hair loss, and you're telling him what the different options are, and you bring up the sexual side effects of finasteride, it's a big no to most gentlemen. Some of them are so troubled by the hair loss that they want to try it anyway. Um, I think that the sexual side effect part of finasteride is somewhat overblown, and I still feel like a nighttime tumescence study needs to be done to prove that finasteride is actually causing permanent difficulty with erectile function. But it's it's nice to have an alternative that isn't finasteride. You also, of course, do need to talk with families about, you know, childbearing if they're wanting to get pregnant, if the, you know families wanting to create and maintain a pregnancy. You may need to do some you know, body fluid interference if there's a pregnant wife involved in your treating a male patient because minoxidil has had one one case report of a woman who's actually just using the topical preparation, but the child had multiple vascular abnormalities. And so for that reason, it's not recommended for use in pregnant women.
0: So in episode one, one of the other articles we discussed was that finasteride is not associated with sexual dysfunction.
1: I don't so you don't need to talk to them about it. But there's all these lawsuits and things out there, so you kind of have to mention it. But um, the nocebo effect. And I think it is the nocebo effect, I know, but they're going to find it on their own too, so I don't know. It's it's hard to know exactly how to deal with that particular problem, but I kind of am able to a little bit dodge it by using the minoxidil, and for most patients, it's an appropriate choice for them anyway. So
0: You don't check EKGs, do you?
1: I do not. Um, and EKG abnormalities that were worrisome were not reported in this episode. If the patient has any heart history at all, I do consult with the cardiologist and I send them the articles about how this medication is used in patients for hair loss. I have not had a single cardiologist tell me not to use the medication. So I think that it's a very nice opportunity for this medication to make a improvement in people's lives. And, you know, it's reassuring that the mild rebound tachycardia that can sometimes occur is usually harmless in patients, and that the blood pressure changes are not usually significant enough to cause problems. They did not this um, article note that one of the ways people mitigate the difficulty with blood pressures, um, dropping in orthostatic hypertension, is to add a little bit of a sodium pill um, for those people who are having struggles with blood pressure. I would be so tempted to just tell them to enjoy a little small bag of Doritos or something like that. <laughs> I think and little... express. <laughs> right. I think that probably the sodium tablet is less detrimental to their health.
0: Well, thanks for your insights there, Michelle. And today we learned about bukushial more hype than hero. I feel confident saying so. We talked about dermatologic adverse effects to cancer systemic agents, including the acneiform rash associated with EGFR inhibitors and MEK inhibitors. Start them on some PO antibiotics at the same time. We talked about unroofing techniques for hydradenitis separativa and about charcoal filters to help keep you safe if you've got a bunch of plumes and stuff in the air. We talked about baby wipes, water wipes, maybe, maybe not as... uh, better than other wipes but there was a nice well done study looking at it and we talked about minoxidil seems to be safe and effective for all types of hair loss Michelle yes Luke our next episode is our last episode of 2020
1: that's exciting
0: so you know what that means
1: that means we're getting ready for the derby awards that's right
0: So last year, we invented some awards we called the Dermy Awards, and we included them as one of our kind of normal within one of our normal episodes. But this year, we're going even bigger. So next episode, the whole episode will be the Dermy Awards.
1: I'm so excited about this because we're going to briefly review the articles that we select as the winners and the runners up for each article kind of category. And I think it's going to just be a fun look back over the year.
0: And I encourage everybody who listens to be wearing their finest evening wear while they do so. And one of the categories is going to be a fan favorite. So depending on when you listen to this and so on, we will put the voting up somehow Social media seems like a good choice. Maybe the website. I'll have to talk to Ryan Carlisle, our social media expert, about the best way to let you guys vote on what you think was the best article that we discussed all year. In addition to thanking Ryan Carlisle, we'd like to thank our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Michelle, or thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us, Michelle. And if you would like to listen to more of our episodes, you can, of course, do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can subscribe. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is also a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on social media. As I mentioned, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And friends, we will see you next time at the end of 2020 for the Dermy Awards.